Good afternoon, and welcome to Beyond the Pale on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Alex Kane, joined by my co-host, Kira Feldman. Today, we're going to be talking all about Israel and Palestine. We'll celebrate the life of the recently deceased Ayad Saraj, a Palestinian human rights advocate and psychiatrist, and we'll play a 2008 interview with him that Beyond the Pale conducted. We'll also talk with author and award-winning journalist Max Blumenthal, whose new book is a deep look at Israeli society's hard right turn in recent years. But first, a look at the American Studies Association's landmark vote last month to boycott Israeli academic institutions. In mid-December, the American Studies Association passed a resolution supporting a boycott of Israeli universities. It passed with 66% in favor of honoring the Palestinian boycott call. Just last week, two New York state lawmakers announced they want to introduce a bill that would strip colleges and universities of state funding if they don't withdraw support from the American Studies Association. Here to talk with us about the academic boycott vote and its backlash is David Lloyd, he is Distinguished Professor of English at the University of California, Riverside. He's also a founding member of the U.S. Campaign for the Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel. Welcome to Beyond the Pale. Thank you for having me this morning. I appreciate it. So just to begin, explain what the American Studies Association Boycott Resolution is. Well, the, the resolution, as you quite rightly said, uh, is a resolution to boycott Israeli academic institutions on account of their deep and well-documented complicity with occupation, discrimination, and dispossession of Palestinians. Um, the important thing to note here, because this has so often been misrepresented, is that it is a boycott of institutions. And it's a boycott of institutions not because they are Israeli, but because of their practices, because of their engagement in uh, practices that do severely discriminate against Palestinians and which really uh, contribute to the possibility of the technical and military running of the occupation. So although people keep suggesting that the boycott is boycotting individual Israeli faculty because they are Israeli, that is completely far from the case. So it's important to get that out of the way. Really, I think that the best way to explain this is what a boycott is, is a withdrawal of consent to collaborate. So just as a strike is a withdrawal of labor, so a boycott is the association saying, we will not consent to collaborate with Israeli institutions in any form so long as the occupation continues and so long as Palestinians are denied equal <coughs> rights that are guaranteed under human rights law and international law. So that, that really, I think, sums it up. David, um, you know, similar boycott resolutions have been passed in the last year. Uh, you know, the Association of Asian American Studies and the Native American Indigenous Studies Association, they both endorsed the call for academic boycott. But the ASA one has generated the most attention and backlash. What's the significance of this? Well, I think it is precisely because it is the American Studies Association. Um, in quite insidious ways, actually, the Asian American Studies Association, um, which I salute as being you know, the first association to actually uh, declare for the boycott, was vilified... 
um, as undemocratic, despite the fact that they followed the procedures. But then, of course, also attacked for being insignificant, because I think largely because they're an Asian American Studies Society. Um, I'm sure the same will happen with Native American Studies and Indigenous Studies Association, who will be uh, dismissed as marginal. And I think it's very interesting because, of course, the uh, supporters of Israel are constantly courting, particularly indigenous people, to try to whitewash the, um, the uh, <coughs> Israeli dispossession of the indigenous people of Palestine. So they court Native American leaders and indigenous peoples, bring them to Israel and so forth. But as with Asian American studies, I would be quite confident that they will begin to dismiss the association um, in various ways. With American studies, it's somewhat harder to do that because it is a long-standing association of, um, in large part, mainstream scholars, historians, political economists, um, sociologists, anthropologists, and so forth. And I suppose that uh, for them, the very fact that a representative association of American scholars has come out for the boycott is deeply unsettling. And I think that accounts for some of the, you know, furious antagonism that has, that has gone on since the, the vote for the boycott was announced. So I think we should um, lay out the academic freedom arguments that were made against the boycott resolution. Just kind of uh, mm-hmm. parse those out for us. Well, the arguments against as I said at first, um, are directed at the idea and try to disseminate the idea that this is a boycott of individual scholars, which it's not. Um, The second argument is that what it does is to cut off exchanges um, between scholars through which understanding and, and as they put it, empathy might be reached. Um, I think the best response to that is that since Oslo, in the Oslo Accords in 1993, which were supposed to start a peace process that would end in a two-state solution, 20 years have gone by, 20 years in which there has been literal dialogue industry developed in Israel and Palestine, highly funded by NGOs and so forth, and it has gone nowhere. On the other hand, when serious criticism is raised of Israeli policy, not only um, in the United States, where for a very long time it was almost impossible to uh, criticize Israel in public and not be slammed by administrations and, and by colleagues and by uh, very, very organized and orchestrated uh, small organizations like Stand With Us, the, the situation in Israel is no, is no better. Um, Palestinian and Israeli scholars who have gone beyond just saying we don't approve of the occupation to criticize various things ranging from um, students coming to class wearing their military uniform or carrying their rifles um, to uh, more fundamental things like uh, Ilan Pape's studies of ethnic cleansing. Whether these scholars have been Palestinians or or, um, have been Jewish Israeli citizens, They have often been vilified. So when we talk about dialogue happening within the Israeli university, we're talking about a very restricted set of of dialogues. And dialogue that aims for reconciliation without insisting that the condition of reconciliation is justice is really not dialogue at all. It's merely more constraint and more coercion. So that the appeal to the idea that Israeli universities are these humming centers of real dialogue that is going to lead to peace has first of all been belied by 20 years of continuing expansion of the occupation and dispossession of Palestinians, and secondly, by the extreme paucity of results coming out of it. On the contrary, as I'm saying, um, 
scholars that really challenge the system within Israel or Israel, the Israeli history of dispossession of Palestinians really get severely sanctioned by their institutions. So um, the, the argument from exchanges seems to me not to have very much merit. Secondly, uh, the argument is often made that um, all, <clears throat> all institutional boycott is tantamount to the boycott of individuals. And that, again, is a false argument. Um, we're very used in academic life to making a distinction between people working for an institution, representing an institution, and people who are simply employed by an institution and engaging in their scholarly work. So, for example, when someone becomes a dean who has been a faculty member in the history department, we know perfectly well that when they work as a dean, they represent the institution, not their scholarship, not their position as a faculty colleague. So it's very easy to make distinctions between when people are working to, you know, forward the mission of the university, or indeed, as in many cases, to forward the, through the institution, the mission of the Israeli state, and to say we will not collaborate with those things. On the other hand, the boycott is quite explicit about saying that it is not based on the identity of a scholar, whether they are Jewish or Arab or Palestinian or whatever, um, but it is based uh, entirely on respecting the freedom of individuals to do their scholarship and research, to publish their scholarship and research, to attend conferences and so forth. In other words, it respects and defends the things that um, all academic freedom embraces. Thirdly, all this um, angry defense of the academic freedom of Israeli academics who will not indirectly be affected by the boycott constantly forgets and disappears the Palestinians whose own academic freedoms are daily discriminated against, daily offended against by an Israeli regime of occupation and, and dispossession. So that um, <clears throat> we may talk about, you know, an Israeli scholar losing the privilege of um, being able to receive money from the Israeli consulate to travel. That would be perhaps uh, an instance in which a scholar might be, be told, no, we're not going to accept you so long as you're, you're funded directly by the Israeli state. The equivalent is for Palestinians is a daily occurrence. Palestinians are denied the right to travel. Palestinian students have been denied the right to take up uh, Fulbright fellowships daily for both faculty and students. The process of simply getting to campus to attend classes or take exams is made virtually impossible on a daily basis by the checkpoints, the separation wall, the gates through the separation wall, and so forth and so forth. And this simply has not been on the table. Um, it is even being disregarded since the boycott resolution was passed. So there's a kind of obdurate refusal to extend the rights of academic freedom to Palestinians alongside a kind of um, hysterical promotion of the idea that Israeli scholars' rights are being infringed upon. Last week came the announcement that State Senator Jeffrey Klein and Assemblyman Dove Hyken plan to introduce a bill that gives colleges and universities in New York 30 days to withdraw support from the ASA and other professional groups supporting an Israel boycott. Otherwise, uh, New York schools would lose state funding. So I wanted to pose this question of my co-host, Alex, and then he can bring it uh, back to our guest because Alex has been covering uh, campus issues here stateside very closely for uh, Mondo Weiss. So Alex, talk to us about who Dove Heikland is and how this fits into his track record of heavily involving himself in campus debates on boycotting Israel. Yeah, so... Uh 
sort of this is part of the backlash the very intense backlash against the American Studies Association's decision to uh, boycott Israeli academic institutions. You know, uh, Dov Heikind is a sort of or- right-wing Democrat. He's an Orthodox Jewish power broker who has who commands a lot of influence uh, in the state assembly uh, and in New York City politics. Um, he uh, represents. Um, you know, communities in Brooklyn with a heavy concentration of Orthodox Jews, and and many of them, though, no, though, though not all of them, have very sort of right-wing uh, views on Israel. And Heiken always seems to sort of um, uh, implant himself in the middle of these debates over Israel on college campuses and um, really uh, bullies um, any sort of academic group, any professors, any... Uh, schools that 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 host um, talk about boycotting Israel or just simply criticize Israel. So you know, um, this is uh, you know, Heiken has done this time and time again. The the most recent and sort of well known one is when Heiken uh, inserted himself right in the middle of the debate over Brooklyn College hosting a, an event on the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. You know, he called. Um, Omar Barghouti and Judith Butler, who were coming to Brooklyn College to talk about BDS, you know, supporters of terrorism, and um, sort of using the most hyperbolic rhetoric and really smearing critics uh, of Israel. So his um, sort of uh, leading the charge against the ASA, which would in fact infringe on the academic freedom of, you know, scholars in New York, is part and parcel of his track record. David, um, I want to bring it back to you for one last question um because we only we only have time for one last question but i wanted to uh have you sort of deep sort of go into a little bit of detail um into how academic institutions are complicit in the israeli occupation you know you mentioned this briefly in the beginning but i want to sort of detail you know what are the links between academic institutions and the israeli state that makes the call for academic boycott uh sort of important well, um, the, the links are manifold, and I've mentioned the maintenance of the occupation, dispossession, and discrimination. So in terms of maintaining the occupation itself, um, Israeli universities, particularly Technion and Tel Aviv University, have been deeply embedded in developing the technological infrastructure of the um, of the occupation, um, working with the state and with companies like Elbit Systems and Motorola to develop the surveillance and communications technology. Uh, Technion um, has had uh, <coughs> professors doing a number of studies, both hydrological studies that investigate where the water aquifers are. Um, and one of the things that people need to know about the separation wall, which pretends to be a security fence, is actually a very high wall but also takes in about 12% of land scheduled to be part of any future Palestinian state. And it runs through areas where it tries to take in the available aquifers, because as you know, the, the uh, region where Israel and Palestine are located is very short on water. And so they're actually appropriating land that contains aquifers, and it's the universities that provide the hydrological studies. They also do the demographic studies that help uh, Israel to map out um, the, the territory in ways which lead to the dispossession of, uh, of Palestinians from their homes and from their traditional lands. Um, the Technion University has helped to develop the D9 bulldozer, which is a bulldozer that's used in the destruction of Palestinian homes, both in cases of eviction and in, in collective punishment. 
one could go on. In terms of discrimination, um, a lot of the discrimination works through a very subtle network of laws um, so that the the actual fact of, of an apartheid system in which there's a system of um, separate arrangements for separate communities is, is quite subtle and hard to spot. But, for example, um, those who have served in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, get all kinds of advantages and privileges, including housing from universities that are simply denied to Palestinians because Palestinians do not serve in the IDF and are allowed to serve in the IDF. Um, the expression of Palestinian uh, political sentiment or even indeed in some cases the commemoration of the Nakba or the catastrophe during which uh, 700,000 or more Palestinians were forced to leave Israel has been censured and uh, attacked on certain campuses so that Palestinian and Arab culture is not taught and not even in some cases allowed to be commemorated. One could, you know, one could continue to elaborate. But the final thing I'll just say is that, of course, the other thing is that um, Tel Aviv University is built on land that was taken um, during the 1948 war, uh, a dispossessed Palestinian village, um, and is simply built on it. Hebrew University has expanded onto land similarly stolen from Palestinians. So there, there are multiple ways in which the universities are complicit, um, both simply in their very existence, but also in, in the practices that they engage in. Thanks uh, so much for joining us, David. Uh, that was that was great. Um, if, if I could just say one word more about the attempt to deny universities the right to, to work with the ASA. I think it will be found to be unconstitutional since the Supreme Court has declared that boycotts are actually constitutionally protected free speech. We will be uh, closely following that those, those efforts in, in New York and around the country. Thank you so much for joining us, David Thank Lloyd. Thank you for your time. That was uh, David Lloyd, the uh, professor of English at University of California, Riverside. He's a founding member of the U.S. Campaign for the Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel. We will be right back. And welcome back to Beyond the Pale on 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. We're going to be taking a look at the life of Iyad Siraj. He was a pioneering psychiatrist, a human rights advocate, and a nonviolent resistor to the Israeli occupation and the Palestinian Authority. But on December 17, 2013, the world lost Siraj when he died from leukemia. He was 70 years old. He was most well known for his work with Palestinian children who suffered the effects of decades of war, occupation, and blockade in the Gaza Strip. In 1990, Iyad Siraj established the Gaza Community Mental Health Program, which focuses on the mental health of people living in the Gaza Strip. Well, in February 2008, Beyond the Pale founders Esther Kaplan and Marilyn Kleinberg-Niemark spoke with Siraj from Gaza City. In the interview, he describes how Israeli cuts in fuel, electricity, and food, and other vital imports impact the Gaza Strip. Here it is for your listening pleasure. We're talking with Dr. Ayad Siraj, the founder and president of the Gaza Community Mental Health Program from Gaza. Welcome to Beyond the Pale, Dr. Siraj. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. 
we hope that you could begin our conversation today by talking about what this last couple of weeks have been like since the closure intensified and since Israel restricted access to fuel and to electricity so dramatically, Gaza being extremely dependent on Israel for the majority of its electricity and fuel. To be honest with you, I was adapting myself to the Israeli siege of Gaza for some time, cutting down on uh, electricity and cutting down on different commodities. I could adapt myself, and so many people could for some extent, but then when Israel announced that it's cutting uh, off completely fuel supply for the generators in Gaza and also the electrical power supply to Gaza, Everybody was in a state of panic. I was one of uh, those people because I have an asthmatic child at home who needs a ventoline and a kind of ventilator every night for his asthma, and that runs on power and electricity. I was really in a state of panic also because of the water supply, which only can come to you uh, through pipes only if there is some generators that I'm pumping water to uh, different floors, and so on. Everything depended on the electricity in Gaza to the extent that people were really in, in a state of panic, and everybody started to think of what is going to happen to the patients in the hospital, what's going to happen to the blood banks, vaccines, patients who are at home need uh, some kind of care, and so on. We were all in a state that was uh, very difficult to live with, uh, and I think that was uh, the, why so many people went to the border of Rafah with, with Egypt, and they burst like floods of people into, of course, they were helped by the militants, I think, of Hamas, who blew up parts of that wall between Gaza and Egypt, and that had allowed for the flood of people uh, who went to uh, the Egyptian side, and, of course, there was a state of euphoria. People felt for a moment that they are being liberated, that they are going out of the prison. Just going out was so exciting, not even for buying commodities, although many people went there to buy uh, food and fuel and so on. But many people also went there for the sake of it, just to feel that they are free. And of course, that did not last for long. Because under the security threat, I think, and under the American administration pressure and the Israelis, Egypt is now closing the gates again. And we are back into square one. We're speaking with Dr. Yad Saraj. He's president of the Gaza Community Mental Health Program. And certainly, as you describe it, this momentary breach only emphasizes what a true prison Gaza has become for its residents. You talked a little bit before about how this electricity and fuel shortage has affected access to clean water and also hospital care. And the United Nations has said that some 40% of Gazans, as a result of this uh, restriction by Israel of access to fuel and power, are now being denied access to running water and sewage, that there are some 30 million liters of raw sewage now being released directly into the ocean each day, and that Gaza hospitals have been forced to rely on generators. Can you talk a little bit more about the impact in terms of water, sewage, and health care 
of these fuel and power restrictions? You see, everything you do in Gaza, everything from the minute you wake up in the morning until the following day, you are dependent completely on power. If you go to any, any hospital today, and for, for instance, you have the hospital in Shefa, which is the major hospital in Gaza. It is composed of eight floors. And, of course, you cannot go from one floor to the other with patients, particularly, without having elevators. And elevators need power, need generators. And the generators need fuel. And the fuel comes from Israel, because that's the only supplier of not only fuel, but almost everything we have in Gaza comes from Israel or through Israel. So when fuel is cut, so the generators in, in, in Gaza, Shefa Hospital and other hospitals will stop running, especially compounded then the danger will be when there is no supply of power itself to come to the hospitals from outside. And that was the real threat. Now, I know I visited the hospital. There are so many patients were on renal dialysis machines. They went there every few days for renal dialysis. I have seen also the children hospital where they have so many children in incubators. And all these uh, facilities, and don't talk about the intensive care unit or the theater, uh, surgical theaters, and so on, all these services and facilities need power and continuous power. You cannot uh, have power for one hour and cut for two hours and so on, as you can tolerate at home. And that was very serious consideration for all the people of Gaza. Of course, next to the Shefa Hospital, there's a blood bank. And the blood bank have uh, different kinds of blood in bottles and so on, but they need to have them frozen in uh, refrigerators. And, and these uh, running on, on power too, on electric power. And if that is not available, then you have spoiled all the blood bags. And the same thing with vaccines and vaccinations. So there's a serious risk on health in hospitals, uh, particularly in hospitals if there is uh, no power and no electricity and no fuel. Of course, the water. You know, Gaza is, is the most crowded place on earth. And today there are so many high-rise buildings because there is no enough land for the people. And all these uh, high-rise buildings uh, have to have pumps of water running on generators and power, electric power, to pump the water up to the second floor and to the tenth floor and so on. If there is no uh, pumps and no, uh, no, no fuel and no generators, then, of course, there is no water, no tap water. The tap water itself, by the way, is undrinkable in Gaza. Because the sea somehow is infiltrating the aquifers. And this is why you have to have filters in your uh, homes to be able to drink the water. For two months now, Israel has not allowed bottled water to come into Gaza, mineral water. And they don't allow water filters to come into Gaza. As if the message is, you can go and drink the seawater. And the seawater now is another third problem is full of sewage because of the shortage of uh, power to uh, the machines that purify and pump and direct uh, the sewage system in Gaza is malfunctioning now. And the result is the sea itself is flooded with sewage. 
which is very dangerous to uh, health, not only for the Gaza, because the sea water is, is going through to the whole Mediterranean. It can affect even the Israeli population itself. Uh, and so it is very serious situation in all aspects of life. Dr. Siraj, of course, Israel claims that they've resorted to these cutoffs in response to the rocket attacks from Gaza into Israel. And, and indeed, a lot of uh, Western media have been persuaded of this. The, the Washington Post, for example, uh, wrote an editorial in which they argued that, and I'll just quote from it, no one is starving in Gaza, though fuel, food, fuel, and cigarettes are much cheaper across the border. Israel closed its border with the territory and disrupted power supplies in response to a massive escalation of Palestinian rocket launches from Gaza at nearby Israeli towns. Between Tuesday and Saturday last week, some 225 rockets were aimed at the town of Sederot, where more than 20,000 Israelis have been relentlessly terrorized. And they go on to accuse Hamas of taking advantage of the blockade by um, calling it a humanitarian crisis, which they put in, in inverted commas to, to suggest that, of course, it's, it's not at all. How do you respond to the Israeli concerns and fears ab about these rocket attacks? Well, I, I, I really understand this, of course, but you can definitely discuss this with, from different angles. First of all, let me tell you that if it wasn't for the UNRWA, which is the United Nations Agency in Gaza, that is today feeding over 70% of the population of Gaza, then we would have serious famine in Gaza, not just starvation, but the consequences of that. Already 15% of our children have stunted growth because of the chronic malnutrition of the problem. If you add to that the starvation and famine, then of course you can imagine the consequences of that. But anyway, I don't agree personally with the rocket launching from Gaza, I don't agree with any violence for whatever reason. I believe in the right of the Palestinians to resist the occupation, the Israeli occupation, but only through nonviolent means. I believe that violence can only lead to more violence. And I, I believe that for our liberation, we need to have the Israeli people and the Jewish people with us in one front. But of course, I must tell you that once Hamas has declared unilaterally a ceasefire, a truce with Israel, and it went on unilaterally for 13 months, no rockets, no violence of any source against Israel. And the result, the result was Israel continued to quell, assassinate, invade, and so on, and so many Palestinians were killed while there were no uh, rocket attacks on Israel. That's one thing. The other thing, regardless of the rocket attacks, which I understand can be uh, terrorizing, in the last two years of rocket attacks against Israel, against the road, if you talk, if you talk about statistics, 700 Palestinians were killed. Eight Israelis were killed. So, I mean, the, the, the comparison is, is so huge. What is important for me, let me tell you this, I don't support Hamas, and I don't want to live in an Islamic state or a Jewish state or a Christian state. I believe that people can live together in one state 
when they are equal before the law. But I consider any judgment on any regime or government or a political movement is its respect to human rights. Today, what Israel is doing to us in Palestine is a form of collective punishment. We're speaking with Dr. Ayad Sarraj. He's president of the Gaza Community Mental Health Program. And in fact, Human Rights Watch, the international human rights organization, just a couple days ago did say exactly what you just said, that in fact, Israel's right full self-defense against rocket attacks does not justify a blockade that amounts to collective punishment. Marilyn and I were devastated to hear what you just said, that 15% of the children in Gaza now have stunted growth due to malnutrition. It's devastating to hear this kind of news. You run a mental health center. What is the emotional and mental impact of this intense closure that's been going on really for a year and a half now, even though it's gotten far more severe, far more restrictions in the last couple of weeks? Well, I tell you honestly, I mean, Gaza has become over the years a place where you produce more violent children and young adults because nobody really in the political you know, hierarchy in Israel or in the United States understanding the psychological impact of this prison-like life in Gaza. And let me tell you, I have followed the children of Gaza since the Intifada uh, number one in 19. 19- 88. At that time, children were throwing stones. But after 12 years, the second intifada in 2000, right, the same children grew up to become suicide bombers because of the devastating life conditions and the environment in which they live in. And that change is so dramatic and so serious. And I fear for the future children. And if now we have serious problems, not only physical but also cognitive and intellectual problems of our children, you can imagine the consequences of that, considering the serious economic situation, the collapse of the economic situation in Gaza today. Gaza has collapsed completely economically. The deprivation, the despair, the poverty, and the lack of hope in any peace process. That will only make people resort to the, what they call the last resort, which is God. And God means joining Hamas or Islamic Jihad or and even more uh, extremist groups. These groups will recruit people. And when they recruit people, they will use them for more violence. And the violence will be directed against Israel. And they have to stabilize the whole region. Talking to people today is already late. Making peace today is already late. So if you delay it for even more, you are playing with dynamite that one day will explode for the whole the Middle East. And believe me, Islamic fundamentalism has come to this area only because there is no peace in Israel, there is no peace in Palestine. Worse is going to come. The psychological impact of children that grow up in such an atmosphere is devastating. I have seen children today in Gaza who are two years old, He's occupied with two things. Are you a Jew? Are you an Arab? Are you a Muslim? Are you not? Are you Hamas or are you Fatah? And do you have a gun or you don't have a gun? A two-year-old today was telling me, asking me all these questions. Do you have a gun 
Why don't you have a gun? This is very serious. And I really fear for the children, not only of the children of Gaza, but I fear for the children of Israel. For me, a Jewish blood and an Arab blood, a Christian blood or a Muslim blood is all sacred blood. I don't want any more blood in this holy place. Dr. Ayaj Saraj is the founder and president of the Gaza Community Health Program. There is, there has been for a long time, a, a tiny glimmer of light, and, and part of that glimmer comes from Israelis who have, from the beginning, worked relentlessly to try to bring peace and justice and between Palestinians and Israelis. Uh, among them, of course, uh, Dr. Ruhama Marton, through whom actually we, we interviewed you some years back about the conditions in Gaza. And just recently, there was a convoy of some thousands of, of Israelis to the Erez checkpoint attempting to bring food and supplies to Gaza. And, and you addressed that convoy. Talk to us a bit about what impact, if any, Israelis like Gush Shalom and Physicians for Human Rights Israel and so on, whether they have any visibility among the, the people of Gaza, whether it makes any difference to anyone that they, that they exist, how you felt when you, when you saw that demonstration uh, the other weekend. Well, look, I, I tell you, I was, I'm, I'm thrilled with the fact that these kind of things are happening today in a very depressing time. I, I'm working now for some time on uh, the campaign to end the siege of Gaza. And uh, one of my best people that I work with are the Israeli peace activists, like uh, Uri Avneri and the rest of them in Gush Shalom and other organizations in Israel and many friends. I am honored and I feel so privileged to have the chance to have met these people and work with them. They were... Uh, inspiration for me in the human rights area and in peace. I mean, talking about Rahama Martin, she was one of my first uh, uh, people to introduce me to human rights, and she was really always an example. Now, I, I feel so privileged, and this is what uh, the whole story is about human beings, human dignity, sharing uh, future together in peace and security. Why do we have to be always manipulated by politicians and ideologies that only divide us and uh, categorize us into good and bad and uh, make uh, our generations to only to want to have revenge and, and killing and violence and be always victimized by one group or the other, by one nation or the other. This is what I believe, you see, is that our future, our destiny is so intertwined together, Jews and Israel. Arabs, Christians, and Muslims are all, they have the same destiny, you know, and they have to live together. And these people are so courageous, always, to stand up against the tide in Israel. And, and, and I'm very sad to say to you that we, the Palestinians, have managed to destroy a good part of the peace camp in Israel through suicide bombing in the streets of Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. That was so devastating to me personally, but also to the future of peace in Palestine and Israel. Nonviolence, although I believe in uh, Palestinians have the right to resist the occupation, but only they have to resist it nonviolently, and they should be joined by the Israelis and Jews who have the, that kind of conscience that they will come forward 
and struggle with us for freedom. Freedom of the Palestinians is the freedom for the Israelis. Liberation of the Israelis is liberation of the Palestinians. Peace here is peace there. Security in Sderot means security in Gaza and vice versa. This is what I believe. I'm going to give my life for this. Dr. Ayad Siraj, founder, president of the Gaza Community Mental Health Program. Speaking to us, I think, from Gaza right now, there's no power at all, and your phone line is independent of a power source, and that's why we're able to speak to you right now. For four years, journalist Max Blumenthal reported on and researched the right-wing turn Israel has taken in recent years. From the deadly military assault on the Gaza Strip to Israeli mobs rampaging around African migrants' neighborhoods, Blumenthal has documented it all. Now his work has been put together in a new book titled Goliath, Life and Loathing in Greater Israel. Based on extensive on-the-ground reporting, Blumenthal brings home the Israel that Americans don't see on network news and in leading newspapers like the New York Times. The book has elicited some major backlash, including in the pages of The Nation magazine, where Blumenthal frequently contributes. For more on the book and the reaction to his work, we have on the author himself. Welcome to Beyond the Pale, Max. Great to be on with you. Thanks, Max. Uh, so, you know, this book is definitely a must-read for those interested in the region, but could you sort of just first tell our listeners, you know, what you set out to do with the book and what you think readers will take away from it? I set out to provide a really intimate on-the-ground portrait of Israel-Palestine since 2009 when um, Israel elected its most right-wing government in history in the wake, or actually during a bloody three-week assault on Gaza known as Operation Cash Lead, and I wanted to present Americans with a picture of the real Israel-Palestine they don't know, which happens to be under the control of one regime, um, the Israeli state, the state of Israel. Um, it's a sort of a single unitary uh, regime, and that's the way I look at it, with no borders um, in which everyone kind of relates to one one another under this kind of uh, regime of ethnic separation. And I focused especially on Israeli society and on the rise of extremism, uh, really the consolidation of extremism in Israel and on how right-wing extremism has moved into the mainstream and sort of taken hold um, under the, you know, government of Benjamin Netanyahu with figures like Avigdor Lieberman um, and his Yisrael Betenu party as an incipient force. So, um, you know, Goliath takes the reader uh, all over both Israel proper and the occupied territories and sort of shows how uh, the racism infecting Israeli society impacts Palestinians and African migrants. You know, what was your method of reporting like? How exactly did you gain access to both you know, Israeli legislators pushing those right-wing laws and those laws' victims. Yeah, I mean, when I uh, started reporting this book, which was in May, t- <clears throat> May 2009, I used the same methods I used in my first book, Republican Gabor, which was to basically immerse myself into the war in the world um, that I wanted to report on. And for me, this meant getting into the key institutions of Israeli life. As you mentioned, I was. 
I spent extensive time in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, interviewing the legislators who were passing laws, um, for, for example, allowing the long-term imprisonment of African migrants without trial, um, crushing the free speech rights of Palestinian citizens of Israel, um, cracking down on Israeli civil society, um, just a whole swath of anti-democratic laws. It was very easy for me to conduct this project because I'm a Jewish American, um, and I'm, I have you know, privileged I, I receive privileged treatment inside Israel as soon as I get to the airport, and that's something that I discuss in the book. Um, I, I throw myself into the book and show how my relationship to the state of Israel is actually absurd if you <clears throat> if you contrast my situation to that of Palestinian Americans who are friends of mine, who are very talented people who are much more connected to the Holy Land than I am, who can't even leave um, their little um, the you know occupied ghettos in the West Bank that have been assigned to them, or who are denied entry at the airport at Ben Gurion International Airport. So this was really a project that I was able to conduct because of the circumstances of my birth and because of the discriminatory basis of the Jewish state, the discriminatory found <coughs> foundation of this Jewish ethnocracy that Israel is. And that informed my reporting massively, and it was a burden that I took with me uh, throughout this entire project. I want to focus on an issue that doesn't get much play in the U.S. media, but it's a, a big part of Goliath. Uh, that would be African migrants in the Jewish state. Uh, you and your colleague David Sheen published a harrowing documentary for the nation that focuses on Africans in Israel. So if you could um, explain this issue for us, who are the African migrants in Israel and how are they being targeted by both civilians and the state? Yes, uh, six hours ago, about 30,000 uh, or 15,000 non-Jewish African asylum seekers filled Rabin Square in Tel Aviv to protest for their basic human rights. A thousand were in the southern city of Eilat protesting. This is the biggest protest of Africans in Israel's history. There are 50,000 non-Jewish African asylum seekers in Israel, and there's no path to asylum for them. There's no path to citizenship for them. It, this isn't an immigration crisis. It's an ethnocracy crisis. These people um, have crossed into Israel, fleeing war and, blood, and bloodshed and poverty in their own countries. They are, they are technically eligible for refugee status under the UN Refugee Convention, but in Israel they've been deemed a demographic threat. Because they don't have J-positive blood, they are deemed a threat to the Jewish character of the state, and the state has um, de um, announced that it will, its intention to deport all of them to maintain its ethnic purity. And that means that the Knesset has um, authorized successive laws um, allowing Israeli police to detain Africans for as long as three years without trial, without charges, in a desert prison which resembles um, nothing as much as Manzanar, the World War II era detention camp for Japanese Americans in California, when Japanese Americans were deemed to possess quote-unquote enemy race blood. So it's an, they're being treated in an absolutely racist manner that exposes the um, essential logic in, of the Jewish state and the contradictions of liberal Zionism. And uh, we're witnessing it unfold before our eyes as the Knesset and, and um, the Prime Minister's office authorize new laws 
which will allow for Africans to be held in a new detention camp in the desert called Holot, where they are forced to check in three times a day, <clears throat> but are technically allowed to leave. And they have to sleep in this camp at night because they need to be segregated from the Israeli public. The fear is that they would assimilate, that they would have relationships with Israelis, or they would make children of their own and continue to contaminate the ethnic purity of the state. So what Netanyahu is doing and the Knesset is doing is turning Israel into a gigantic sundown town, um, reinforcing the whole um, regime of segregation that has traditionally governed relations between Israeli Jews and Palestinians, and now applying it to a new group, which um, the state freely admits poses no security threat to Israel. Yeah, and, and Max, as you mentioned, you know, there have been unprecedented waves of protests over the past month where you had African uh, refugees coming out into the streets along with a small segment of Israeli leftists organizing and protesting for their freedom, for their right to live in Israel. And, you know, for, for listeners who are interested in this topic, I would really highly recommend going to thenation.com and looking up Max Blumenthal's and David Sheen, who's a, an Israeli journalist uh, who has been, who's done the most pioneering work on, on African refugees in Israel. Go to thenation.com and check out their really har harrowing and scary documentary. Max, I want to turn to the backlash against the book, which has been quite ferocious from, you know, a right-wing group in Florida trying to shut down your talk to liberal Zionists like Eric Alterman taking it on in the nation, and most recently the Simon Wiesenthal Center named you as one of their top anti-Semites of 2013. Um, I was wondering if you could explain this intensely negative reaction, what you think is motivating it. Well, just to slightly clarify, uh, if your listeners go to thenation.com, they probably won't find this video, so go to YouTube and look for Israel's new racism, <clears throat> or just read my book, because my book deals with the African issue in Israel more extensively than probably any book that's been published and the backlash against Africans in Israel. Um, and it was because of the publication of that video um, in the nation and the excerpting of my book that Eric Alterman launched this attack on me. Um, you know, nine blog posts that concluded with him smearing me as a neo-Nazi. Um, this is, you know, a you know, front-line liberal columnist at the nation, smearing me as a neo-Nazi. Um, as you mentioned, the Christian right group attempted to shut down one of my talks on my tour. A local chapter of APAC attempted to shut down my talk in Dallas. Um, the neocons John Podoritz and Ron Radosh attempted to shut down my talk at the New America Foundation. Um, there is an attempt to shut down my upcoming talk at Northeastern University this Tuesday. Um, by um, Charles Jacobs and Stand With Us. Uh, there has been an attempt to suppress this entire book, which simply presents the facts on the ground and exposes the discriminatory logic behind the Jewish state. And you would expect that if these characters, these um, pro-Israel zealots, could make a positive case for Israel, they would do so. And Benjamin Netanyahu would march down Fifth Avenue in New York City, and everyone would throw candy at him. But instead, they're engaged in a McCarthyite campaign of free speech suppression, of demonization and witch hunts, which have failed, by the way. They've failed in every respect to suppress my book. It's going to a second printing 
Um, sales are steady. I've received enormous support on the road from a really diverse audience, and I really feel like something is happening out there. Um, tonight at 7.30, C-SPAN will air my talk at the National Press Club, which was at the, you know, the banquet hall where Dick Cheney was scheduled to speak about his um, non-existent heart the next day. And it was like a standing-room-only event with 300 people. They had to bring in extra chairs. It was an incredible scene. Um, so I really feel like this, this attempt to suppress my work has wound up um, promoting it and that my book has opened up space for other authors and other journalists to do um, similar uh, pieces of work on Israel-Palestine and actually be able to market themselves without, the, without caring what the gatekeepers think. Uh, without caring that the New York Times will ignore you or that liberal Zionists will attack you, because things are really changing right now. Well, Max, uh, we're going to have to have you on another time because we can we can uh, sort of go through this all day. But we don't we don't have any more time, unfortunately. But I want to sort of thank you for for coming on and encourage everyone to go to maxblumenthal.com and go to amazon.com and order uh, Goliath. Um, it's a really fascinating book. If you're interested in Israel-Palestine, you should pick it up. So thank you so much, Max, for, for coming on Beyond the Pale. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that was Max Blumenthal, the award-winning journalist and author of the new book, Goliath, Life and Loathing in Greater Israel. That's all the time we have for Beyond the Pale. We're streaming at WBI.org 99.5 FM. And uh, visit us on our website at beyondthepale.org. Uh, this was Alex Kane with Kira Feldman. Thanks a lot for joining us. On Sunday, January 5th at 11 p.m., Shugin My Bowl will honor Brother Youssef Latif. This program originally aired in January 2010 when Brother Youssef received an NEA Jazzmaster Award. This program